we're going to be looking at a new subject this month uh, called Questions of Canon. Questions of Canon. It's just going to be a brief overview of the Bible and uh, how we get our Bible and why the Bible can be trusted and why we have an Old and a New Testament and why some books are in and other books like the Gospel of Thomas were never in the Bible and all these sorts of things. Because some people say to us that this Bible is man-made, written by human beings. Well, that's true. And the people that decided what would go in the Bible and what wouldn't, they were just human beings and they just made it up as they, they, got, they, they, they uh, go along and um, that this isn't really the word of God. Uh, or that the church decided what went in to the scriptures. And we're going to look at the integrity of the Bible over these four weeks. And today's a bit more of an introductory. I'm trying to, to be honest with you, I'm trying to feel today where we're going. So, um, you know, it's new to me to teach this in, in this sort of in environment. And we'll be doing that for four weeks. Um, and then uh, next month, in, in, in October and November, we're going to be looking at Walking in the Supernatural, a School of the Spirit. And what we'll be doing then, we've done a, quite a bit of doctrine, we've done family values. So we're going to look at how to live a supernatural life. That's in October and November. How to hear from the Spirit, walk with the Spirit, how to manifest the gifts of the Spirit so that our daily life will be supernatural. Not natural, but supernatural. How prayer can actually supernaturally uh, set in motion things on a daily basis. So just to give you a feel of where we're going, and greetings to all of you on the internet, because I know a lot of people watch this either live, five o'clock, or um, they've come to the services in the morning, they don't want to hang around, that's fair enough, I suppose, and, um, and so they watch it later in the week. So all of you watching this later in the week, uh, you're very welcome to this series. Don't forget all the five o'clock ser series that we've ever done they're in the series section on our media. So you'd be surprised at some of the things that we've gone through in the five o'clock teaching series. And there may be a series that you're interested in from the past that will be just the thing that you need. So don't forget to visit and see the series we've done over the years. There might be an area of, that you really want to study or, or get to know, and uh, we've already covered it. So do look at our media section on our webpage and go to the series and then you'll be able to see those as well. Well, today we're looking at questions of canon. And uh, we'll look at this a little bit later, but the word canon is a technical name to talk about all of the books and the letters and the Psalms that we have in what we call our Bible. Genesis right through Revelation. The word canon uh, comes from the Latin and the Greek that really means a reed. In the, in the ancient uh, Near East, they would use a reed as a standard measure, a bit like what we would have a ruler today. You know, you have a ruler, a 30-centimeter ruler, and if someone's saying, well, you know, how long is that? How, is, how short is that? Oh, I don't know, I reckon it's about 15 centimeters. Well, why don't you get a ruler, put it up against a ruler, and find out exactly how it is? Well, that's what the word canon comes from, from the word uh, uh, read from the Greek that was used as a measuring. So the word canon comes to us as a measurement. Those, thing, those books that measure up to being the word of God and the measure of the Bible. In other words, what makes these books distinct together as the word of God. 
uh, we know in the New Testament, we'll be looking at the New Testament's view of the Old Testament. And uh, we know that Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy said, all scripture is God breathed. God breathed. Well, what is scripture? What is scripture? That's what the canon addresses, questions of canon. Say, well, what was he talking about? Which books was he talking about? Was he talking about the Old Testament as we have it? Was he talking about some other books in the, in the so-called Apocrypha, such as Maccabees, that maybe many of you have never heard of, but you'll find them in the Roman Catholic Bible in the middle between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Apocrypha, a series of books that to Roman Catholics are the word of God but to others are not the word of God. Well, who's right? Well, we'll come to all of these questions in time. But before we get into sort of like working out how the Bible came to us and which books are there and why we can trust them as the word of God, I just want to say a few things in introductory. And, and, and uh, I'm leaning heavily in this section on a particular book that I recommend to you if you really, if you think that what I'm giving to you is a little bit light, uh, and you'd like a bit more deeper, I'll give you a few other books as we get to other things, but one of the great books is Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, M-C-D-O-W-E-L-L, M-C-D-O-W-E-L-L. Normally you can get it in the bookshop or on Amazon. Evidence That Demands a Verdict, where he looks at a lot of criticisms about the scripture and about Jesus and, and such things as, how do we know that Jesus was raised from the dead? And he brings the evidence to that. Now, remember that Christianity is either everything for mankind or nothing. It's either the highest certainty or the great delusion. When people talk about the scriptures, as we'll see, the scriptures, the word of God sees itself as divine, inerrant. There's no errors in its teaching and so scripture has a very high view of itself. It just said all scripture is God-breathed. Jesus himself said that scripture, speaking about the Old Testament scripture, said scripture cannot be broken. It came with a strong authority. Jesus' claims to himself and who he was and the worship that he accepted from people like Thomas. You can't just say that Jesus was a good teacher. Well, on whose authority did you just say he was not a good teacher? He was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. Well, on whose authority do you say that? Not on the authority of the witness of scriptures, not on the authority of the witness of Jesus himself. And so when we look at Christianity, it really is, according to the claims of scripture, all or nothing. And the first thing to say when we come to this Bible is, have you found that how, how many um, uneducated people that have never properly studied Christianity in, in a serious way, have said that the Bible is just a book of myth, that you might as well get some Aesop's fables or some Greek mythology or the Bible. You know, sometimes you hear some of these uh, new atheists, Dawkins, uh, say things like, believe what the Bible writes. I would just as easy re uh, believe that there were pixies living at the bottom of my garden or, or strange mythological creatures. That is a totally misunderstanding of, of the Bible and the canon of the Bible. As someone who's actually bothered to take three years of my life and do a theological degree in, heavily based on scriptures, I can say that the uh, ignorance about this book or this body of book or the canon called the scriptures is astounding what people believe. 
You see, Christianity is a factual faith. It's not some mythological faith. It's a factual faith. It appeals to history. Let me give you some examples. You know, some people say, oh, the Gospels, what a load of rubbish, just a bunch of, of mythology. Well, really? Well, the Luke didn't see what he was writing as mythology. On the contrary, and uh, when you think about how the, how the um, academic uh, discipline of history has moved on through the centuries, uh, even a historian today would be impressed by what Luke himself says he sets out to do in Luke chapter 1. Let me read it to you, a bit of the scripture we don't uh, stay on very often. He's writing to Theophilus, which is, uh, the word means God-lover. And he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. This isn't some mythological make-it-up book, not according to the author. What the author is saying, look, I have wanted to write history. Now, uh, anybody that knows, has been taught history at any level know the importance of eyewitness account, of going back to the evidence as close to source as possible. And here we have Luke. He's not doing history in Cambridge or Oxford or any of the other places today. This is way back then. And sometimes and people criticize and wrongly criticize New Testament believers for being uneducated, not interested in the facts, just change things as they It is not the case. They weren't, they weren't a bunch of, of, of religious wackos that just made it up as they went along and changed it as they went along. Certainly not in their minds. And Luke is using all the right words. He's saying, from the beginning, eyewitnesses that actually were there. Um, those that were, I want to write an orderly account that you might have certainty that you'll know that this is a credible account from sources that were there. And uh, we see this even in Acts chapter 1. Again, history. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts. In the first book, that's Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after he suffered his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And staying with them, he ordered them not to depart, but to wait for the promises of the Father. So here is his second volume. And he says, look, I gave you the account of what happened in his life. And now I'm going to give you a similar historical count uh, here in Acts. Now, when we're talking about the facts, when we're talking about the Bible as fact, we're saying that the facts backing up the Christian claim are not some kind of religious fact, some weird sort of like revelation. Well, an angel appeared to me and told me it all happened. Oh, really? No, the facts that we're talking about are facts of information. We're talking about genuine eyewitnesses. 
We're talking about genuine people that existed, Pontius Pilate, all these people that were in the accounts of the Gospels and Acts were real people, can be verified from other external sources. We, we are talking about facts and the idea of historical, legal, ordinary decisions. And actually, we will find that the uh, Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible, uh, is... is, is, is um, can be examined historically and even scientifically in a way that nearly all other ancient material can't. I mean, if you look at some of the other ancient books that were written, histories like Suetonius's Twelve Caesars and many other books that people and scholars pick up and say, well, yeah, th this, this book is history. And then, and then you find that, that, that they don't have a trail of copies of copies over the years and, and, and some of them, the, you know, it's like Homer. Homer was meant to write his book, the Iliad, and then they didn't have a copy for hundreds and hundreds of years. So how do you know it was him that wrote it when you only got a copy hundreds and hundreds of years afterwards? We'll see that one of the important things about Old and New Testament is that you can trace, you can trace what was written in the originals and how they had been faithful transmitted and copied and copied again so that if somebody made a mistake it would be one copy amongst thousands of copies that would correct the mistake. It, it's, it's one of the most accurate, uh, if not the most accurate piece of ancient literature um, that, that's available for historical study even if you're not a Christian. That, that's what we're looking at. And um, I, I, I've said already that people say, oh the Bible's full of Fairy tales and myths, the Virgin Mary, miracles and the resurrection are made up stories and fairy tales. Well, the events that happened to Jesus were personally known by the New Testament writers, not just by them, but also by their enemies. The Pharisees knew what had happened. The Sadducees knew what had happened. Uh, when the New Testament, for example, was being formed, the New Testament was in its finished form while there were still direct eyewitnesses to everything that, got, that had gone along. That's why if you wrote something and made something up, you could easily go to the people and they could say, well, I was there, it didn't happen that way. Or you could say, this feeding of the 5,000, was that a made-up story? No, I was there. That's what Luke did. He went back to the historical sources. And also, again, the, those that wrote the New Testament, we're going to stay with the New Testament here, and then we'll go to the old as well. But those, for example, that use the New Testament, they, been, they were constantly appealing to the fact that they were eyewitnesses, one of the most important sources of history, even modern history. And this is ancient history. You can't expect them to look at history like, an old, like a, a historian at Oxford University, and yet they understood the primary source and the importance of eyewitness accounts. Let's just... Have a, have a few of them, so you get a feel. This is not some mythological book. The people writing here uh, were, were talking about things they'd seen and experienced. All right, let's just go through a few. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. And, and, and he's hitting this myths. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. Listen to this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses 
of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the mountain. You know he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, aren't you? Uh, That was reported in the Gospels. And here Peter's saying, look, look, I was there. We're not making up some myth about Zeus or Venus or Hera or something like that. We're talking about things that actually happened. We actually witnessed them. We were there. I heard the voice. So these people were either liars, lunatics, or they actually were witnesses. He's either lying here or he was a witness. Uh, Let's have a look at 1 John Chapter 1, verse 1. That, 1 John 1, 1. That which from the beginning, which we heard, which we've seen with our own eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. Come on now, this isn't... This is their testimony. You can say, well, they're liars. Well, what's your evidence that they're liars? You see, there's a lot of people out there that say, oh, they must have been lying. Really? What's your evidence? What's your evidence? Because we can look at some other eyewitnesses, other testimonies. We can look at the history of Acts. We can look at the history from other sources, from Jewish sources and from Roman sources. And so before you just simply dismiss an eyewitness because you've got a prejudice against Christianity you better dig a little bit deeper. You hear what I'm saying? It's amazing how people come to the Scriptures with such prejudice against it. They say, well, you've got a prejudice for it. Well, we're here today to show that what we're looking at is reasonable. Reasonable. Not just because Pastor Bruce says it or Pastor Collins says it. You're here today. I wish to God this place was filled like it was at the 11 o'clock service because these things are important. Not just for our knowledge, but for our our encouragement and faith and assurance so that we can give these people who know nothing an answer. Oh, we've looked at Acts already. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. Speaking about Jesus, verse 5. And Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, and as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What Paul is saying is this. Yes, Jesus is alive. Yeah, and I've got eyewitnesses, 500 at one time. And you know what? Some of them are still alive. I'll take you to them if you want. I'll take you to them. Some have fallen asleep, but many of them, when he wrote this, would still be alive. I could take you to hundreds of people who were there that time when he appeared. Eyewitnesses. People could test this. He didn't have to say that. If he was making a bunch of myths, he could have just left it out and just said Jesus appeared. No, he's appealing to historical fact, to eyewitnesses. And he said, even I myself am a witness. I saw Jesus. We could go into Acts, couldn't we, as 
as well, Acts 10 verse 39. And we could talk about where Paul is giving his testimony to different people. And he, and he says, let me tell you my story. And I was on the road to Damascus. And, and then Jesus, it's a testimony, an eyewitness testimony of a historical event. Even the persecutors of the church couldn't deny what was happening. The Pharisees did not deny Jesus' miracles. They never, they, when, when you see the testimony in the Gospels, and when the Gospels were written, those Pharisees were still alive. The Pharisees that were in the Gospels were still alive. Most, especially when the first three, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, they were alive. The very people in the book, the enemies, were alive. And yet there's no evidence that they ever disputed the miracles of Jesus. Many of them saw them. They, the Pharisees criticized him for healing the man with the, the withered hand on the Sabbath. See, this is a historical event. This isn't, this isn't some sort of like, oh, it just dropped from heaven. This, this, this word from God just dropped from heaven, really. No historical context. Me turning up to KT one day and say, look, oh my God. You never know, never know what happened to me last night. I woke up and the book of Bruce dropped from heaven. It did, no, I'm telling you, it dropped from heaven and, and it's got loads of things in it. And everyone should, should be kind to Bruce and give gifts to Bruce and God will be pleased with you from the book of Bruce. And you'd be going, you wacko. But, but here, this is things happened, events happened. Things took place in concrete villages at certain times with different people who were named from different things. It involves people like Herod. It involves people like Pilate. It involves tax gatherers. It involves synagogue leaders. It involves, it was done at a certain time when there was a census that was taking place. Do you hear all these things? This isn't some book that someone just wrote one day and said, here you are. This is full of eyewitnesses. The people that you've just read, and I couldn't find more, were saying, look, we were there. We experienced it. What we're teaching you was given to us from the apostles who heard it from Jesus. How marvelous. The Jesus of history is knowable. You get these people and the Dan Brown fans who somehow got this impression that the Jesus of the New Testament was nothing like the real Jesus. Well, Where's their evidence for that? What evidence do they have that's better than the New Testament evidence and the other evidence directly around it, such as historians like Joseph and, 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 and other, other uh, uh, sources? Where, well, they go to some weird text hundreds of years later, talking, though it doesn't even say that Mary Magdalene was his wife. Weird text. And they would rather put their trust in things written hundreds of years later by Nobody that was understood to have been related to the apostles. Oh, look, the Gospel of Thomas. I just found it. Oh, really? Nobody in Christendom has ever heard of it. Oh, look, these exist. The Gospel of Barnabas, it's there. Oh, where did that come from? Nobody in the New Testament era ever heard it. No of the, none of the early church fathers ever heard it. You know, when, when we finish with the book of Acts, when the Gospel of John was finished, that's called the apostolic age. The age of the apostles. But has anybody ever thought what happened after the apostles died? Well, the church continued. And what we call after that is we, we have the early church fathers. Church fathers, that's what they're called in history. You want to find out about the church fathers, Google it. Early church fathers, people like Arrhenius. And they would write letters. 
And they were familiar, we'll look at this again when we go into the New Testament indeed, they were familiar with all the scriptures that we use today in the New Testament and Old Testament. And these were just a few years after the apostles had died and some had overlapped. So we can see that the word of God, the New Testament we've been specifically focusing on now, was situated in history. Eyewitnesses. It was written while the eyewitnesses were still alive. Read to the churches while the eye. Someone could have stood up and go, oh, wait, 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 wait. It wasn't like that. I was there. Or even if it, they weren't there, my mum was there. She never said it was like that. It was done. But by the time the last apostle died, we had our New Testament being copied and copied and read publicly in churches. It's amazing the historical context that we have. Jesus is very knowable. I want to say a few things about the uniqueness of the Bible because what tends to happen is we're either brought up as Christians and we have our Bible and we just think of it as the Bible. We don't think through it. Where did it come from? Where are the But we just read, oh, praise the Lord, the Bible and, and everything like that. Or you become a new, a new Christian and someone blesses you and gives you a Bible and says, there you are, that's your Bible, that's the word of God. And they go, okay, fine. And the Holy Spirit witnesses to them, but they go on to it. But to sit back and to think, how unique this body of literature is compared to anything else in the world. It is unique. You know, people talk about, oh, the Christians have their Bibles and the Muslims have their Quran and the Hindus have their whatever. Um, as if we've all got our sacred scriptures and they're very similar. They're not very similar at all. The Bible, the canon of the Bible, is totally and utterly dissimilar to the Quran. It's not like, you know, we have a Bible and the Christian's Bible is the Quran. It's totally different in every way, in every form, in the way that the Quran was put together. You know, there were many Qurans straight after Muhammad died. There were many Qurans, many versions. They even had a fight over it until the one that won said, right, this is the Quran and burn all the different versions. You can look at the Quran and you can see the stories in the Quran in earlier apocalyptic and strange Jewish religions. The stories, very stories in the Quran were taken from Jewish mythology just around the area of Mecca for years before. You can trace it. You can trace it. It's a totally different body of li literature than the Bible. The message of the Quran is totally the opposite message to the Bible. The Bible says that the sum of all history is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. The Quran was expressly written, or well, it wasn't written, it was piecemeal, brought together to attack. It was written in response to saying that Jesus is not the Son of God. This book, the New Testament, tells you to love your enemy. The Quran, I'm not saying all Muslims say this, but the Quran, let's go back, the Quran says, slay the unbeliever. If someone, according to the Quran, does not convert, they can be put into slavery, they can be slain, they, can have, they are given a special tax as a second-class uh, 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 citizen. You can relieve them of all their possessions and you can take their wives as your slaves. You say Muslims don't believe that. Some do. They're called in Islamic State. Well, where do they get their beliefs from? The Quran. The Islamic State is the purest form of Quranic uh, Islam. It is the pure, if you've studied the Quran, and I have, what you're seeing with the Islamic State is word for word in the Quran. 
I just thank God that so many Muslims don't follow the Quran. You know what I'm saying? So this is not an attack on Muslims, but it is an attack against the teaching of the Quran. But the Bible is unique. The Bible, unlike any other literature, it was written over a period of 1,500 years. Think about that. Not, not just a few years, but 1,500 years. By more than 40 authors from every walk of life. You've got Moses, the great patriarch. You've got David, the shepherd boy. You've got philosophers like Solomon. You've got priests like Ezra. You've got fishermen like Peter. You've got doctors like Luke. Incredible, the, the, the amount of people that God used to bring the canon of Scripture together. It was written in different places. It was written in different times, in different, during different moods, times of great joy when the temple was made and deliverance from Egypt, times of great pain when the nation went into Babylonian captivity and it appeared like God had given up, up on them. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and New Testament Greek. Written in many styles. Isn't it so wonderful? You've got history. You've got philosophy. You've got wisdom like Proverbs. You've got uh, poetry like Job and uh, Psalms. Beautiful, beautiful songs are written in our Bible. You've got letters. The letter to the Galatians. You've got prophecy. Oh, we've got prophecy. Revelation in the New Testament. We've got Jesus prophesying. prophesying. We've got the Isaiah. We've got the major prophets and the minor prophets. Prophesying, prophesying, thus saith the Lord. We've got law. We have the law, the temporary law that was given to keep Israel from the nations until Christ would come. We've got revelation. Wonderful difference. Unity yet diversity. All this diversity. Different authors. Different genres. And yet, I don't know about you, but the more I study the Bible, the more it's united. From Genesis. Genesis right through to Revelation. I mean, you see, you find the gospel in Genesis. I mean... It's one message. Sometimes you get people that haven't properly studied the Bible and they say, oh, the Old Testament is against the New Testament. Not at all. Not at all. The gospel is found with Abraham before the law came. And, and so I find that when people misunderstand the Old Testament and the New Testament, when they misunderstand it, it's usually because they don't realize what they're reading. That the New Testament is no longer under the law. It's no longer an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was right at the time. But now it has turned the other cheek. You see, the law, the law is given because, let me tell you something, the law is right and the law is holy. If everybody was judged under the law, we would all die. And sometimes you say, oh, how can you believe in a Bible that says that homosexuals should be executed? Well, I don't believe that at all. Because why? I am a New Testament believer. But let me tell you this. The Bible also says in the Old Testament that adulterers are meant to be executed. I mean, basically, the Old Testament says you all should die. 
No matter who you are, you're found guilty and you all should die. It's not singling anybody out. If we were to be judged by the law, the law says God is so holy that all of you fail the test. No matter who you are. Okay, that's what the law's message is. It's not just one group of sin or this group of sin. It's the whole lot of us. Every one of us, doesn't matter who you are. If it was by the law alone, the Old Testament, we are judged. That gives us God's standards. But thank God, God giving us his standard, he also gave us his grace. For whoever you are, there's grace. And so you see that in the law, right at the heart of the law, there's sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. Abraham, the gospel, it's all there. It's united. It's there from beginning to end. Anybody that studied the Bible properly will understand. It all fits together perfectly. If you think that there's something in the Bible that disagrees with itself, then it's probably because you haven't actually understood it. Many times I've not understood things, things I don't quite understand right now, but I found over the years a little bit of study and a little bit of Holy Ghost help, I have solved many of the things that appeared to be discrepancies in the Bible. In fact, you can get whole books and go on the internet and look at discrepancies in the Bible and and how their appearance uh, is false. They're actually, the Bible is a whole. It's Christ-centered. From the beginning to end, it's all about Christ. You shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush your head right there at the beginning. It's unique in its circulation and translation. Every single year since it was printed, the Bible has been the best-selling book. Every single year. Nothing can touch it. They don't put it on the top of the New York bestseller. Why? Because it would have been there for the last, well, however long that's been, 100, 200 years. It's the greatest-selling book of all time, translated into 2,200 languages. It's unique in its survival. I mean, we have these Bibles that we can uh, read, but, you know, how, 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 were, how were these first written? Well, it was written on perishable materials and manuscripts. You know that at this time, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament period, they didn't have printing presses. They had to hand copy everything that they did. And they did, because both the Jewish faith and the Christian faith understood that the testimony of those that were there would only last a certain amount of time in their life. They were men of the word in the Old and New Testament. The New Testament church, remember, was Jewish-driven. And the Jews had a high view of Scripture. We'll be looking at how, for example, Peter himself in his epistles speaks about Paul's writings as Scripture. They understood what the Holy Spirit... And they made sure that it was written. And they made sure that it was copied. In the Old Testament, of course, they they even had a group of people whose job was to secure the transmission and to copy the transmission of the Old Testament text right through the ages. They were called the scribes. You ever heard of the scribes and the Pharisees? It was the scribes' job not only to keep the Old Testament secure, but to continue to faithfully copy and copy it. The scribes or the Masoretes. That, that, that would do this. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of, of, of an example of the, what these scribes would do, these, these Old Testament scribes. Uh, they would be continually giving their lives to copying out the scriptures. And of course, in those days, the scriptures weren't in books, they were in big scrolls. And so they would copy these scrolls, these scribes, and they would 
check one another's uh, copying to see that it was right. And they had all this incredible mathematics where they would work out an Old Testament book, how many words were in it, how many letters were in it. And they would work out all these mathematical formulas in these books in order to ensure that they could properly ensure that nothing was added and nothing was taken away. Every, they believed that they were doing an act of the most holy work when they were copying. And so they, they would have all these rituals that would help secure the, what they were writing. They weren't, they weren't sitting there with a glass of coffee, you know, sort of like, and, a, and a biscuit eaten and doing Isaiah, and oh, spilt coffee on it. This was a highly religious act. In fact, every time that they came to the word Yahweh, which they weren't allowed to pronounce, uh, and, and that they, the, the, and they would write it as Yahweh, but they would pronounce it as Lord. Every time they came to the word Yahweh, they had to put down their pen and go and have a ritual bath. So whenever you read in the Old Testament in capital letters, the Lord, L capital letters, that's Yahweh. So you went, the Lord said and the Lord did, and you just think of some Jewish man going back, having a bath, coming back, oh no, another Lord, having a bath, coming back and... I'm trying to give you a short sense of, of how important this was to them. This was God's word. This was, thus saith the Lord. This wasn't something. And um, it, one of the big failures of, of modern uh, academic theology, I think it's being addressed more today, is they have, this, they have so many pre-ideas pre that in the Old Testament and New Testament, people were writing it, rewriting it, changing it to fit their circumstances, not liking that bit and taking it out, or, or thinking something else should be put in, and changing it and having different editors. And, and some of modern scholarship looks at the Old Testament and says, ah, oh, well, we, well, we can see, we can look at Deuteronomy, and we can see that uh, it was written by, by one person, and then somebody else, maybe a priest came and said, oh, I don't like that, and rewrote it, and somebody else came and rewrote it, and somebody else added something in. And you say to yourself, where's the evidence? And the evidence is very scant. It's usually some sort of uh, a professor with a brain too big, to, a brain too big and full of nothing that is conjecturing. Why? Because they want to make it like that. I mean, I, I did a theology degree at Durham University. It was the best and the worst of study. I learned loads in there that I'm really grateful for from great teachers, but also it was a bunch of rubbish. Uh, people just with opinions and ideas that were prejudiced. So for example, it was assumed, assumed by the majority of lecturers that were teaching me that miracles could not take place. Therefore, when we study the Gospels, no miracles took place. They were written in later. Well, where, where is your evidence that miracles don't exist. How many here can ever attest to say that they have experienced or seen a miracle of God in their life or somebody else's? We've got eyewitness testimonies. And there's a, an, an amazing book actually on miracles by someone called Craig Keener. It's an academic work on miracles where he goes to show that the way that people dismiss miracles and the testimony that we've just had, you didn't have to put your hand up, that the way that people approach miracles and, and say, well, you know, a miracle's not a miracle until we decide. And in other words, 
But, but you can turn it around and say, wait a second, who are you to say it's not a miracle? I mean, look at that. There's a testimony there. And we could talk about those things. Um, so we, we see how careful they were. I mean, the Old Testament scribes, I mean, it nearly became idolatry. Now, you know the Jews are not idolatrous, don't you? You know they hate idolatry. But have you ever seen in the synagogue where the scrolls are on a television or in a book, where the scrolls are kept in a special cabinet, the Torah? Have you ever seen the, um, the rabbi come and take it out and kiss it? Think about that. That, that could be construed as idolatrous. I would, I would never kiss the Bible. I would find it inappropriate as a reformed Pentecostal minister. I'd find it inappropriate. Oh, I just did. But that's because I don't mind. I'd find it inappropriate to kiss the Bible in reverence because the letter kills. It's the spirit that brings life. And sometimes in higher churches, there is a sort of like, you know, everybody bow when the Bible comes by. Well, why? You know? But, but the Jews, for the Jews, it was a great reverence. And it was that reverence that made sure that they were very careful about, you know, I'll talk uh, 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 probably next week about how the Old Testament books came together, but I, I, I'm just giving you a feel, um, you know, to it. So many, you know, we were, many people say the Bible was changed and corrupted many times over history. That is just not the case. So they say we don't have any idea what the original said. They say that the Bible is inaccurate and full of errors. The books chosen to be in the Bible were randomly chosen by a group of men in a church service. The Bible is fictional and mythical. It's not. It's true that they wrote on papyrus and on skins and in scroll form, but these were written again and again and again and copied. And I'll speak about this later, but let me show you how things work and how things were secured very quickly, both Old Testament and New Testament. If I took, uh, this isn't original, this is a copy, but if I took a copy of something that I had handwritten, it's the only copy now, it's the original, okay? And I gave this copy, if you would come up, Scott. I gave this copy to Scott and walked away and left it with him. Now, if he copied that, somebody else, he could make a change in that, couldn't he? Now, how about this? How about, Chris, if you could uh, um, um, come up and, um, would you come up as well? How about if, in the church service, I read out what I'd written, and I said, I'd like you three to make a copy of this and send it to some of the other churches, and they sat down and each made a copy, okay? And then, how about the copies that they made then went to three others and a copy to three others. In other words, you've got a lot of people copying and I've got my original and people are copying, copying from the original. And I could bring up five or six more and say, would you make a copy of this? Would you make a copy of this? Would you make a copy? Then you take your copies and they're copied very soon, thanks. Very soon, you're going to have a lot of copies. And the more copies you have of this, the more handwritten copies the more secure this original comes. Because, um, see if I've done it. because if I took this copy and got a number of people to copy them and then said, right, 
you get others to copy yours and others to get copy yours. If, if I got this piece and I said, right, copy it, copy it, copy it, and we just spent some time and you copied it. Say the first two rows, I gave you this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, about, about 15 people. And you made copies. And then you turned and gave it to others to make copies. Then what would happen very soon is I'd be able to take the original and throw it away. You say, oh, now we don't know what you've written. No. I've got about 100 copies being made. Well, what if somebody made a mistake? Well, we've got another 99 copies to check it with. You see what I'm saying? And if you made one mistake, you put in a word wrong or you missed a word out, we've got another 99 copies here that we could test it with. It'd be obvious that you made the mistake, not us. Or you decide you'd slip in a cell. Oh, don't like what Bruce had written. I'll change that. We got another, say, 90, and there's more than 99 of us here today, but we got another 99 copies. Do you see what I'm saying? And the more that's copied and the more that's copied, the less likely it is. In fact, it becomes almost impossible for someone to change the original because we have so many copies. If someone misses out a paragraph, and sometimes the copies uh, later on, hundreds of years later, missed out a paragraph. You, you hear what I'm saying? The more copies we have, the more we can be sure that we have the original. The early copies, the many copies, it's copied, it's copied, it's copied, it's copied. Even if you were a nasty Satanist and you wanted to change it, it would never be accepted. Why? Because we've got so many copies. Do you hear me? That, the, the New Testament and the Old Testament, the New Testament is the most copied set of literature ever. And they were copying it so that they could believing it was the Scripture. The Old Testament too, copy after copy after copy. In fact, the Old Testament, one of the, there came a time when there were so many Jewish Christians that were living out in the Greek world called Hellenistic Jews living in Egypt. Remember Jesus, there were so many Jews living in Egypt that when Jesus had to flee, where did he go? It's because there were so many Jews living there and in Babylon. And, and so, so many Jews were speaking Greek that one day they said, we ought to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And they did. And sometimes in your Bibles, you will see in a comment, LXX in, in, in your notes. LXX says. And LXX, what that means, it's, 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 it's 70 in Roman numerals, and it means Septuagint, which is the name of the, of the Greek translation of the Old Testament done, done well before Jesus was born. And that is amazing. And the story, you say, well, why is it called Septuagint 70? Well, this is the story. Not sure, don't know if it's true or not, but 70 Jewish scribes said, we need to put the Hebrew into the Greek so that the Greek Jews can read it. And it was said that 70 of them went into their own cubicles and without relating to one another, set about to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And that when they came out, the 70 versions were exactly the same. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's where we get the word Septuagint or 70. And this is very helpful for us. You say, well, why? Because if there's a Hebrew word and we're not quite sure what it means, does it mean this or does it mean that? Because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, you know that. But you know that the Old Testament in Hebrew has no vowels, no A, I, E, O, U. Just consonants. And so that's why when you get the word Yahweh and say, well, I say Jehovah. Well, I say Yahweh. Well, I say Jehovah. Well, which one is it, Bruce? 
Well, it's difficult to know because we have a Y, an H, a W, and an H. A Y, an H, a W, and an H. Try pronouncing that, but I can't. Why? A Y, an H, a W, an H. I can't pronounce that. Why? Because I need an A or an E or a... Uh, so, uh, and the Y, if you put the right... If you, if you put a, a certain vowel in it, it could be a J. So it could be Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. Don't know. I've just got... Don't know what it is. Now, later on, after Jesus uh, uh, had been alive, the Jews said you know what, we ought to put some vowels in, some dots and dashes, just to help people read it. We know how to read it because we've read it for centuries, but we should do that. And so when you're not sure, ah, what does this word mean? Is it a word with an A, an I, an O, or you? We don't know, we've just got the consonants. You can go to the Greek translation. and say, well, how did they translate that word in the Greek? And you go, ah, oh, that's how they translated it in the Greek. That helps us understand. Do you hear what I'm saying? Um, you know, it's a bit like... Um, uh, you, you being French, not being able to speak English, and you come and, and, uh, and I give you my book, No More Law, and you're reading it, and you think, I don't really understand this, and someone says, well, here, here's a translation. It's into French. It helps you. And you, you, you can say, well, I don't understand this English word. Well, what's it like? What French word did the translator use? So look at that. In the Old Testament, I just threw that in for good measure. In the Old Testament, whenever you see LXX, it means the Greek version, and it just gives us an understanding because often... In the New Testament, they will quote from the Greek version. So sometimes in the New Testament, when something's slightly different, a quote is slightly different to what you read in the Old Testament. You know what I'm saying? You ever seen that? It's a slightly different. You think, oh, oh, did Matthew change the Old Testament? No, he's quoting from the Greek. So it's the same meaning, but slightly different words. It's a richness to it. Say something in English, say something in French. It can mean the same thing, but it'll have a different tone, won't it? And so these are the sort of things that we're doing when, when we're, we're looking at our text. Well, what I'm going to do next week is I'm going to go a little bit into detail in such things like, well, when we talk about the Old Testament, for example, I will address next week the fact that in our Bibles, we have Old Testament, finishes at Malachi, and New Testament. But in the Roman Catholic Bibles, there's a whole section in the middle called the Apocrypha. And that has such books as 1 and 2, Maccabees and Esdras and Tobit and, and a, whole, a whole body of things. And one of the attacks that we have is, well, you Christians can't even decide what's in your own Bible. So how, how am I going to believe this is the word of God when, you know, one branch of Christianity has an Old and New Testament, another branch has Old New Testament and Apocrypha. You can't even decide. You see, it was human beings that decided what went in the book because you human beings, you, you Protestants and you Roman Catholics, you can't even agree what's in your own Bible. Well, we're going to look at that next week, all right? But what we will do before we get there is we'll say, well, wait a second. What did Jesus believe was in the Old Testament? That's important, isn't it? What did Jesus... What If Jesus... Did Jesus anywhere say... What he believed was the Old Testament scriptures. And we'll find that he did. He did. The, and, and we'll also see that in the New Testament, Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes fell out on many things, didn't they? But they never fell out on what the scriptures were. They never said, oh, well, I don't believe that, uh, you know, Isaiah is a prophet. They never fell out, the Pharisees and Jesus, on what was the, oh, the Sadducees were a bit weird. 
But the Pharisees, the teachers, the scribes, they said scripture, they would discuss scripture. Never once did they have an argument about what was in the Old Testament and what wasn't. We can see Jesus and what he believed and what he used as scripture. We'll see the New Testament followed the same things that the New Testament believers believed in the Old Testament scriptures. After all, that was their Bible until the New Testament was written. They believed exactly the same as as the Jews and the early church, church fathers believed exactly the same. So we can understand the New Test, the Old Testament from the New Testament. And we'll also look at the fact that the Jews also had this body of literature um, and what they accepted and what they didn't accept. So we're going to have a look at that. And then we'll address some of the falsehoods where people said, oh, there was this council or that council where people sat down and said, well, maybe it's time we decided what was scripture or not. Shall we decide? Should we put James in? Oh, I don't know. don't know. Well, what else should we put in? I don't know. Well, all in favor of putting Paul in? Uh, Corinthians? Aye, okay, well, that'll go in then. And they, and they say to you, oh, you didn't even, for 300 or so years, you didn't even know what was in the Bible, what was in the New Testament. Absolute rubbish. And so we will look at these things and spend time talking about these things. And then, if we, depending on how we go, because I don't know how much I'll cover. I covered more than I thought I would today. Um, if we do have time, we'll start looking at alleged discrepancies. In other words, where did Cain and Abel get their wives from? Do you know? It was their sisters. Oh, well, they couldn't have their sisters because the law, the law wasn't around that time and the gene pool that they had was huge. And we'll look at some of these things. The Gadarean demoniac. Remember that? They went into the pigs. You read Matthew, read Luke. One talks about one Gadarean demoniac. One talks about two Gadarean demoniacs. Well, which one's right? Was there one or was there two? We'll look at that. Did Jesus cleanse the temple at the beginning? As in, uh, as in John's gospel, did he cleanse the temple at the beginning of his ministry? Or did he cleanse the temple at the end of his ministry? As in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And there's answers to all of these things. Just in case you're not around, I better just, just, just mention it. There was two Gadarean demoniacs. But one, Matthew or Luke, I always get mixed up. One focused in on a particular individual. Another spoke about two. It's like you can get one newspaper when there's a ferry disaster. One newspaper says 100 people perished in the ferry disaster. Another news, newspaper says eyewitness account. I survived the ferry disaster. One's focusing on one. One's talking about 100 but it was there. Did Jesus cleanse the temple at the beginning or the end? Both. I mean, within 20 minutes of Jesus cleansing the temple, they had the tables back up again. Had the tables back. They didn't, they didn't, oh yes, Lord, they were making millions of pounds. They didn't, you know, he cleansed it. Within a few seconds, those tables were back up again. He cleansed it at the beginning and at the end. And, uh, and, the, and there's many other things that we can look at, but we might look at those um, and maybe if I'm bold enough, I might even take some questions from the floor when we get to that, uh, if we have time, which we probably will at the last thing. So that's what we're doing. We're looking at the integrity of the word. We, we have, this was just introductory. I can only give you introductory material. You want to go a bit deeper? Get Josh McDowell's evidence that man's the verdict. As we go forward, I can give you books, uh, titles that talk about how to deal with Old Testament and New Testament. There's a great book that my son has, has just read called Is God a, a Moral Monster? Is God a Moral Monster? And what it is, it looks at everybody's criticism about the Old Testament, you know, God destroying 
cities, men, women, and children, what sort of God would do that? And, you know, these laws about, you know, if you commit adultery, you should be uh, executed. Isn't that a bit harsh? And all these things and these misunderstandings of Old Testament and compared to new. We'll look at all these things. By the way, I can't, I, I'm enjoying myself. So. By the way, if you, if you really want to understand shorthand how to deal with the law and the New Testament, you hear all these terrible judgments in the Old Testament, and someone says, oh, you Christians, you believe in this, that, and the other, and punishments. If you really want to understand the heart of the law, the best place to go is when Jesus forgives the adulteress. Remember that? They bring her to, in Luke, they bring, in John, they bring her to him, and they say, Moses said, she was caught in adultery, she should be stoned. That's what Moses said. They were correct. That's the penalty. We're all under the law. And what did Jesus do? He said, you without sin cast the first stone. In other words, he says, there's no human being on earth that can execute the law because they themselves should be executed by the law. And then what he does, what does he say to her? He says, I don't condemn you. But then he doesn't leave it there. He says, sin no more. Why didn't he condemn her? Because somebody had to pay the price for her adultery. Who paid the price for her adultery? Jesus. See, it's all there in that story. If anybody ever starts hitting you saying, oh, the Old Testament law, you Christian, you just say, I'm not an Old Testament believer. I'm a New Testament believer. In the Old Testament, it doesn't matter who we are. We're all condemned. Every single one of us is condemned flat by it. If you understand where I stand on the law, here, I'm a New Testament believer, and this is what Jesus said. He said, if anybody can, has a clean slate, let them execute the Old Testament. I tell you what, Jesus could have picked up a rock and struck her with it, and he'd have been righteous. But he, he allowed the rock of the cross to crush him, so that he could say to her, go your way. But he still affirmed the sin, didn't he? Didn't say, go your way, it doesn't matter. He said, go your way, sin no more. That is your best answer and story for anybody that starts giving you this rubbish about, you know, your, your Bible says, crush this, do that, destroy the other. You say, I am a New Testament believer. And you can thank God that there is a New Testament, eh? Thank God we're New Testament believers. I'm telling you what, if there wasn't a New Testament, we're finished. Thank God for the New Testament. I am not an Old Testament believer. I am a New Testament believer, and so are you. So we'll pick this up where we left off next week. God bless you.